Devontae Booker, 15 fantasy points. Dance party time. No, come on. I get it. Dance parties are fun. You want to dance. I want to dance. But we are not going to be the dance party show. One of these weeks, we'll be scraping the bottom of the barrel to find some guy that we touted six months ago who scored a touchdown. No, we're not going to do that. We're very happy that Devontae Booker received eight more carries than his previous career high, and his touches and his fantasy point output was on par with C.J. Anderson in week seven. We're happy about that. This is reason to celebrate. Most of us have Devontae Booker stashed on our bench because we know Devontae Booker is a better running back than C.J. Anderson. We know this. We also have Ty Montgomery stashed on our bench in the hopes that he will be given dual eligibility, and ESPN has already heeded our call. Listening to our pleas, someone at ESPN clearly went 0RB based on how quickly that particular fantasy platform added running back to Ty Montgomery's fantasy positional eligibility. Thank you, ESPN. Yahoo, you're next. And Ty Montgomery is also reason to party. If we were going to be the show that insisted on finding some reason to throw a dance party every single week, we had two good players to celebrate this week, Ty Montgomery and Devontae Booker. Because Ty Montgomery, wow, 120 all-purpose yards, 9 evaded tackles, 22 fantasy points. 9 evaded tackles! Go to playerprofiler.com, click on the game log tab next to the metrics tab, and we include evaded tackles for running backs. We have already switched Ty Montgomery from wide receiver to running back on playerprofiler.com because, as we said last week, he is a running back. Montgomery was born to play running back. He doesn't look like a wide receiver. He doesn't play the wide receiver position particularly well. So put him at running back, just like NFL coaches decided to put Theo Riddick at running back. Theo Riddick played wide receiver at Notre Dame, landed in Detroit. They looked at him and said, oh, no, you're not a receiver. No. And Theo Riddick looks more like a receiver than Ty Montgomery does. Six foot, 215 pounds. That is the stature of an NFL running back. With great burst, above average agility, an average running back speed, and good hands for a running back. Ty Montgomery doesn't have great hands for a wide receiver, but he does for a running back. The bar for Ty Montgomery's completely changed when you start comparing him to other running backs. We were not impressed with Ty Montgomery at all coming out of Stanford as a wide receiver. But when you compare his stature and his measurables to other running backs, it's much more impressive. His burst score percentile rank jumped once he converted to running back. 129.4 burst score, which combines the vertical jump and the broad jump into one equally weighted metric on playerprofiler.com, that jumped to the 90th percentile. Montgomery went from an underwhelming player at the wide receiver position to a truly exciting player at the running back position. That's because the wide receiver position is stocked with more talent than the running back position across the NFL. So it's in Montgomery's best interest to move to the running back position. If I were his agent, I would be talking to Packer management, to the coaches, to my client, encouraging all parties to convert him to running back permanently. 
That's where he belongs. That's where he can help the team most. You're looking to deploy your talent in an optimal way to give your team the best chance to win. That's putting Ty Montgomery at running back. So Montgomery succeeding at the running back position, essentially breaking out as a running back. That's more exciting to me than Devontae Booker splitting carries evenly with C.J. Anderson. They're both dance party worthy, but there will be no dance party today. We've done the fake out show already where I said we weren't going to do a dance party, then we ended up doing a dance party. This isn't a fake out show. This is for real. This podcast is like an underground warehouse. Nobody knows when it's going to be converted into a techno club. Nobody knows. You could drive past it and never know there's a club there. We don't want people to know too much about what we're going to do next. We cannot be predictable. We need to always be moving, always evolving, always innovating. You don't want the guys in the khaki pants and the button downs to find out about your party. No, you don't want the bachelorette parties to know where you are. No, that's why you cannot be predictable. You have to always be on the move. And if we're going to do a dance party, those in the know will hear about it via word of mouth. And there will be no tourists. Roto Underworld Radio is not a tourist attraction. It's for those that are plugged into the scene. If you're not plugged into the scene, you don't get the show and you don't get to enjoy the dance parties. We're not handing out flyers telling you when and where to be to enjoy the next dance party. It doesn't work like that on this show. This is an underground warehouse that nobody knows exists except a handful of the most plugged in individuals. And sometimes Tiesto stops by to spin for an hour. Sometimes it happens. But he's not stopping by the club that's across from Applebee's. That's not us. We're also not the show that describes players as hashtag good at football. We'll never be that show either. The hashtag good at football needs to end. Because I read this from my nemesis Mike Clay. Denver wasn't kidding about using Booker more. You think? I added the you think. Fortunately for Anderson owners, it's a run-heavy offense, and he's hashtag... Yeah, wait for it! Good at football. Yes, good at football. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for that analysis. Good at football. That's great. Wow. The oversimplified, nondescript, good at football. Yes. I'm so analytical that I can throw out a hashtag good at football. And it's ironic yet descriptive. Yes. No, you can't. You can't be both the stats nerd and the good at football guy. One completely contradicts the other. Because the stats guys are using metrics and analytics to measure a player's talent profile and his fantasy potential given his situation. That's very different than the analysts who watch the games and are reporting back what their eyes are telling them. That's what the good at football people do. You can't be both. You just can't. If you want to dabble on both ends of the fantasy analysis spectrum, then the credibility of your entire body of work is necessarily diminished. And what can hurt your credibility even further is when your eye test analysis is flat wrong. 
Sometimes the metrics are telling you one thing, your eyes are telling you another. You have to choose. Analysts are most often caught with both hands in both fantasy analysis method cookie jars when they own that player in many of their leagues. That's what I've found. The ultimate source of whimsical fantasy analysis is the my guy bias. The my guy bias is a plague on fantasy sports analysis. You see this all the time. The fantasy analyst who owns significant C.J. Anderson is forced to cherry pick the analysis from whatever camp best fits their narrative and aligns with their preconceived notions of the player. That's how someone ignores the advanced metrics on C.J. Anderson and just grabs that hashtag good at football. And the funny thing about the C.J. Anderson is hashtag good at football observation is that Devontae Booker is objectively better at football than C.J. Anderson by every measure. Draft capital. Workout metrics. College production. NFL efficiency. It's Devontae Booker across the board. And if you watch the players play, Devontae Booker looks objectively more explosive, more dynamic in space. He's a better route runner. He's better in all phases. The anecdotal observations and the data analysis are aligned. So even if you believe C.J. Anderson is hashtag good at football, that's fine. But you also must agree that Devontae Booker is even better at football. The bottom line is this is not a road you want to go down as a C.J. Anderson enthusiast. There is no road that leads to the objective conclusion that C.J. Anderson is a better football player than Devontae Booker. You're not going to find anything to support that position. And the only way a tweet like Mike Clay's tweet gets written and published is self-delusion driven by a my guy bias that creates this confirmation bias tunnel vision. You're only looking for reasons why your guy isn't doomed. But I'm here to tell you, C.J. Anderson is objectively doomed as a running back in the NFL. Because if he's getting usurped by a third-round pick before midseason, after signing a contract extension, it's over. We can call it now. We'll go through the exercise of watching it all play out in the weeks ahead. But I'm calling it now. C.J. Anderson is doomed. We talk about the flawed buy low, sell high tactics in fantasy football trading. I prefer buy high, sell low. C.J. Anderson is a sell low candidate. And the beauty is someone might look at his week seven stat line and pay full price, even though his opportunity share reached a season low. This is the week to trade away C.J. Anderson if you still own him. And fantasy analysts cannot have it both ways. You can't be the good at football guy and the stat nerd guy and cherry pick which type of analysis best suits your guys. Hmm, let me decide which type of analyst I'm going to be today. What are the stats guys saying? Interesting, interesting. What are the narrative chasers saying? Oh, interesting, interesting, okay. I'll take a little of that and a little of that. Whatever I can collect to prop up my guys. Got it. I'm not saying that the C.J. Anderson is good at football analysis is absurd. I'm not saying that. 
I just object to the inconsistent methods. And speaking of inconsistency, last night we saw bad football played by players who are apparently good at football. So we saw good football players playing badly. Now, I didn't watch the game. I don't watch any of these games in real time. I watch some of them after the fact. Others, I just watch the highlights. My wife objects to me admitting to this on air. I was at a party this weekend, and my wife overheard me telling someone that I don't watch most of the games. And they were appalled. What? What? And you call yourself a football expert? What? First of all, I'm not a football expert. And second of all, who said watching games makes you a better analyst? If anything, the less game action you watch, the more unbiased your perspective becomes. Most performances that I do not see live, I view through a different prism than most analysts. This allows me to provide a unique point of view. Most of these games I watch as Dozer observes the matrix. Just stats and advanced metrics falling down the screen. And I play out a lot of these games in my imagination because I do not have time to watch all of the game. Because there's not enough time in the day for me to consume all of the broadcasts. But my imagination allows me to better describe to you what these players are capable of. By having to visualize it and not just describe what I'm seeing, I become a better orator a better football podcaster. And that's what I explained to the gentleman I was talking to at this party. And he bought it. Oh yeah, he bought it. That's so interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. And I'm thinking to myself, did that even make sense? Now I'm saying it again. Yeah, it does kind of make sense. Yeah, it does make sense. The reason I'm less biased is because I'm not disproportionately affected by singular actions Singular actions which are heavily influenced by randomness during the course of a game. So many analysts will stake out intractable positions on players, like C.J. Anderson, for example, and insist that these players are hashtag good at football, when there's no empirical evidence to support that. And if you trace it back to the roots of the position, the roots of the sports opinion, you'll find one impressive run or one impressive individual football move one jump cut. Think about Colin Kaepernick. That one majestic long touchdown against Green Bay in the playoffs was the seed that sprouted years of misguided fantasy football positions about Colin Kaepernick. He is absolutely not hashtag good at football. He's not good at reading defenses and he's not accurate. So if you don't know what the defense is giving you and you can't deliver the ball accurately, you cannot be a successful NFL quarterback, period. We're seeing this with Blake Bortles right now. We're seeing it with Brock Osweiler right now. The flaming ball of hog shit that you saw in Brock Osweiler last night was the result of bad football analysis by the Houston front office. And we were criticizing Houston the moment they signed Brock Osweiler to a $72 million contract. Roto Underworld was leading the mob, carrying the torches to burn down Brock Osweiler's house made of cash. But there are singular throws on the Brock Osweiler NFL resume that are hugely impressive. A 40-yard downfield strike to Emmanuel Sanders against the New England Patriots in the playoffs. 
an exceptional throw. But was Brock Osweiler's downfield courage and downfield accuracy repeatable? No. The impressive throws that Colin Kaepernick has made in his career are not repeatable. The impressive throws that Blake Bortles has made in his career are not repeatable on a regular basis. That's what separates the good NFL quarterbacks from the bad NFL quarterbacks. Can you repeat the money throws over and over and over again? Why is Drew Brees great? Because in any given game, he hits numerous money throws. I think Aaron Rodgers is a douche, but no one would deny that he hits on multiple money throws per game. And we're going to be rolling out a metric on playerprofiler.com called money throws next year. Because that's something that I think is interesting on quarterbacks. How many money throws are they completing per game? How repeatable is their athletic brilliance? Repeatability is an important litmus test. And the only way you can see whether or not a player is capable of repeating feats of athletic brilliance is to zoom out. Expand the sample size. That's the mantra we preach. That's the exercise we're constantly striving to complete. And when you ask yourself, is C.J. Anderson's performance against the New England Patriots in the playoffs repeatable? Is Colin Kaepernick's performance against the Green Bay Packers repeatable? Once you zoom out and expand the sample size, the answer is no, it's not. But when you chase after the fantasy analysis and you follow it down the rabbit hole, all the way to the roots, you see the seed of the bad analysis is so often a singular moment of athletic brilliance that a particular fantasy analyst witnessed while watching a game. And that observation forever taints their perspective. And another source of misguided fantasy analysis is rooted in the implicit trust afforded to injury reports. More bad trades happen involving injured players than any other. One of the listeners wrote in. You can tweet us at Roto Underworld or email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. Tweeter writes the show, I traded Spencer Ware for Doug Martin. Help! Lots of ease. Lots of exclamation points. Well, I have some advice for that tweeter. Be a better listener. Because we've stated on the show multiple times, do not trade for injured players. If you do, you're doing it wrong. And if you must trade for an injured player, trade for a player who's coming back from a broken bone, not a soft tissue injury. And this advice is in direct conflict with advice I heard given by the folks at Rosterwatch on SiriusXM. The folks at Rosterwatch were insisting their listeners trade for Jamal Charles a couple weeks ago. And there was a dramatic pause. And as if reading the tablets from the mountain, the roster watch host stated, Now is the time to trade for Jamal Charles. Windows closing on Jamal Charles, everybody! Oh, brilliant! The Chiefs were coming back from a bye, and Jamal Charles was scheduled to return. Wow. I bet no other fantasy gamers were considering trading for Jamal Charles given that he was scheduled to return in a week or two. Wow. Truly insightful. Reminding all of us that Jamal Charles would be back soon. And soon after, the roster watch audience went out and traded for Jamal Charles. What happened? He had a setback with his knee, and he received one carry in week seven. Because of course. Because you don't trade for injured players. The Chiefs running back you should have been trading for two weeks ago was not Jamal Charles. It was Spencer Ware. Jamal Charles was the painfully obvious trade target 
that every fantasy football enthusiast was aware of and valuing highly, while Spencer Ware was a contrarian trade target. Most fantasy gamers were heavily discounting Spencer Ware's value because everybody knew Jamal Charles was about to return. And then what happened? Setback! And in week seven, Spencer Ware is back to being the full-time running back. Ah, roster watch. Is it too late for them to change their URL to roster? Is it? Now, I understand. Multi-week injuries are not a death sentence. Jonathan Stewart suffered a severe hamstring strain. It cost him multiple weeks. And you saw fantasy gamers dropping Jonathan Stewart. You shouldn't do that either. I'm not saying drop a guy the moment he experiences a multi-week injury. I have Corey Coleman on a number of benches. I own Jonathan Stewart in multiple leagues, and I didn't drop him anywhere because he's probably coming back. So you're not going to drop him, but you also weren't trading for Jonathan Stewart because the fantasy community in general assigns a value to a player based on the team's stated injury timetable. And that's what I object to. When a team says a player is going to be out four to six weeks, bank on it being six weeks. If he doesn't experience a setback, and then they have to put him on the IR, because that happens a lot. This discussion started with a listener writing in that they traded Spencer Ware for Doug Martin. Doug Martin is the poster child for injured guys that you should not be trading for. Even Tevin Coleman is radioactive right now. I know you don't want to hear that. But if you own Tevin Coleman, you shouldn't be dropping him. You should be stashing him on your bench and just eating it. And sure, if someone offers you an equivalent running back who's healthy, you accept the trade. You get out from under the risk that Tevin Coleman's injury now presents to your roster. But you don't go out seeking to add injury uncertainty to your roster. You don't do it. You just don't do it. You'll be so much happier as a fantasy gamer if you just say no to any offer that involves you acquiring an injured player. But when injuries hit, it inspires extremism among fantasy gamers. I've noticed that. The owner of the injured player either wants nothing to do with him, dropping Jonathan Stewart for a backup tight end. Don't do that. Or the opposite extreme. Owners diving into a pool of irrational risk, gobbling up injured players at a discount. Oh, what a deal. He'll be back in two weeks. There's no reason for injury extremism. I own Tevin Coleman in every league. He got hurt. I put him on the bench. I replace him with another running back. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be stressful, and you don't have to be a daredevil. Just deal with it. And if you're considering trading for an injured player... Do not ask me if you should do the trade on Twitter. Forget it. Last week marked the end of my career giving free advice on Twitter. And it's not because we have the concierge program. Playerprofiler.com forward slash concierge where you can sign up for personalized streaming fantasy advice via direct message, via text. I'm here for you if you sign up for concierge. Otherwise... I will not answer your question on Twitter. Who should I start? Who should I sit? I'm not going to answer. I used to. Sometimes I would see a start-sit question, and instead of directing the tweeter to my rankings, I would just tell them what I think right there. Boom. Just a reflex. Start Devontae Booker. Start Ty Montgomery. No more. Never again. You want to know why? Because Twitter trolls destroyed the free advice fountain. 
someone would ask, should I start Cameron Meredith or start Devontae Adams? I would say Cameron Meredith. Three days later, someone on Twitter would play the result and respond to that tweet, mocking my advice. So I said, okay, I'll never do that again. You wanted to agitate me and you succeeded. Congratulations, trolls. You did it. You agitated me. Then I realized, why am I exposing my advice in a public sphere when A, I charge others to give this advice, and B, it becomes available for any self-loathing fantasy gamer to mock and ridicule. This is why Skip Bayless is so impressive, because he's inundated with thousands of troll tweets per day, and he responds to none of them. He gets mocked, he gets ridiculed, and he doesn't respond. He doesn't care. That's the magic of Skip Bayless. He understands the game better than anyone. None of this is to be taken seriously. And most of the individuals trolling around social media are just self-loathing jackals who only exist to lash out at other people because they hate their own lives. And then I realized, wow, this policy doesn't hurt me at all. This policy actually saves me time and effort and aggravation. The only ones that lose are those that are genuinely asking questions that will never be answered, but they have no one else to blame except their Twitter brethren. We had someone tweet me, how do I challenge the podfather on no halftime? You think I'd accept a random challenge from someone on no halftime? No, that's where you go to challenge your friends. If you're one in six and your fantasy season's likely over, you go to no halftime, download the app, and challenge friends to individual player prop bets. I've seen the traffic. A lot of you are clicking on that play Odell Beckham Jr. on no halftime icon in the middle of the player profiler pages. That's great. Unfortunately, not many of you are downloading the app. So if you click on the icon and it asks you to enter your cell phone number, you need to enter your cell phone number, and then they text you a link to download the app. So that way, even if you click the link from a desktop computer, they'll text you a link to your phone so you can quickly download the app to your phone because you can only use no halftime on your phone. I think many of you are expecting to be able to use no halftime on your desktop computer. It's a mobile app only. That's why it's asking for your cell phone. So the next time you're on a player profiler player page, click on play this player on no halftime and actually follow through with your cell phone number and download the app. And then when you open the app, you can either create a new challenge or there are a number of existing challenges that you can just accept from any stranger. That's the beauty of no halftime. You can challenge your friends privately or you can accept challenges publicly. That's why we support it on playerprofiler.com. Now, my favorite prop bet last week involved Drew Brees. I bet that Drew Brees would beat Narrative Street in week seven, and he did. But the beauty of Drew Brees posting over 300 yards and three touchdowns at Kansas City was he didn't just beat the narrative that he's bad on the road. He also beat strong empirical data that shows that Drew Brees is measurably worse when he doesn't play in a dome environment. There's enough data going back many seasons showing Drew Brees is significantly better when playing at home. That's not merely a narrative. That position exists in the intersection of the anecdotal and the analytical analysis. That's as close to a true statement as we're going to find in football. 
where it's so hard to know the truth about players. We know, as a matter of fact, Drew Brees is a significantly better player at home. But he's still Drew Brees, and he's still capable of 300 yards in any given game. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter what the tendencies and the probabilities say. I bet on Drew Brees, the elite Hall of Fame quarterback with upgraded weapons in Week 7. And I cashed. But there was a purely narrative street argument that was also eviscerated in Week 7 by Drew Brees. And it has nothing to do with the home road splits. Drew Brees eviscerated the baseless narrative that he does not like to throw to wide receivers. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. Drew Brees, one of the most accurate and prolific quarterbacks of all time, doesn't like throwing to wide receivers? Who said that originally? And how did so many people start regurgitating that ridiculous assertion? He prefers to throw the ball to tight ends and running backs. Remember that analysis? Yes. Just absurd. It just, it, it never made sense when you heard that analysis. It sounded laughable on its face. It should have been dismissed immediately. But instead of being dismissed immediately, based on the fact that it was illogical on its face, instead, the fantasy football echo chamber just kept saying it. And if enough analysts say the same thing enough times, eventually, it's perceived to be true by consensus. And yet, in week seven, Michael Thomas, 13 targets. Willie Sneed, 11 targets. Brandon Cooks, nine targets. The vast majority of the targets were all funneled to wide receivers. Why is that? Why? Why could that be? Maybe because Drew Brees has great receivers for the first time in his career. In previous years, he was throwing to a broken down Marcus Colston. He was throwing to Devery Henderson. He was throwing to Brandon Coleman. He was throwing to Robert Meacham. He was throwing to Lance Moore. Replacement level players and below. Wide receivers who were quickly flushed out of the league soon after leaving New Orleans. That's who Drew Brees was throwing the ball to until this year. This year, he has Brandon Cooks in his third year in the NFL. Peak Brandon Cooks. Willie Sneed in his third year. Peak Willie Sneed. And one of the most impressive rookie wide receivers in Michael Thomas. Drew Brees has been given a significant wide receiver upgrade, and it's no surprise he's now throwing to wide receivers a lot more than tight ends and running backs. Duh! <laughs> Drew Brees just throws to the open guy. He doesn't have a preference for the tight end. The Drew Brees likes to throw to the tight end narrative is one of the most ridiculous narratives I've heard in my career analyzing fantasy football. Because for that to be true, think about it. You have to put yourself in the shoes of Drew Brees. He snaps the ball. He drops back. He looks at the wide receiver, and then he looks over at the tight end, and he says, eh, the wide receiver's open downfield, but I just like tight ends better. I'm going to throw the ball to the tight end. That would never happen! I mean, maybe it would if you're Andrew Luck throwing to Kobe Fleener in your rookie year when you have rapport developed with Kobe Fleener because Kobe Fleener also went to Stanford and you've been Kobe Fleener's teammate for many years before entering the NFL. Maybe in that specific circumstance... You might be more inclined to throw the ball to Kobe Fleener than any other player in the Reed progression. Maybe.
maybe, maybe in that one specific circumstance, you could build a logical argument that Kobe Fleener would receive preferential treatment from Andrew Luck. Maybe, but even that is a bit far-fetched. Now make it Hall of Famer Drew Brees at the peak of his powers. And you think that he's going to throw it to Kobe Fleener because he somehow, some way, prefers to throw to tight ends? That's why you're drafting Kobe Fleener? That's why you're starting Kobe Fleener? Based on that narrative? Because that's what I heard. He's going to throw the ball to Kobe Fleener instead of throwing it to Brandon Cooks, who on any given play can break a tackle and outrun the defense for a touchdown. Really? He's going to throw it to Kobe Fleener instead of Willie Sneed, one of the most sure-handed wide receivers in the NFL? Really? He's going to throw it to Kobe Fleener instead of throwing it to Michael Thomas, one of the most exciting young playmaking wide receivers we've seen in a while? Really? No! Absurd. I don't understand where these narratives come from, but let's hope, let's pray that Drew Brees targeting his wide receivers more than 30 times last week was enough to finally obliterate one of the most ridiculous narratives in the history of fantasy football. But we're not going to spend the entire show mocking other websites, mocking bad analysis. I want to be sure to give you some actionable information that can help you win money. Because I have a contrarian observation that I think you'll find useful. I've been making money playing chalk-heavy cash lineups in GPPs. Now, I alluded to this in a previous show. It's becoming incredibly difficult to cash, especially in these double-ups on DraftKings. There's a 10-point difference in the double-up pay line versus the GPP pay line. Now, cashing in a GPP does not double your money. You get back 150% of your buy-in. But I would argue playing 10 $1 GPP lineups is a better investment than playing one cash game double up because not only is the pay line 10 points lower for the GPP you also get the life-changing upside of a big money tournament I am not a big time DFS grinder but when I do play daily fantasy I play GPPs and on playerprofiler.com we have the DFS lineup wizard playerprofiler.com forward slash optimal dash lineup and if you review our lineups from last week they cashed why did they cash? Well, the FanDuel cash lineup was Tom Brady, Jaquiz Rogers, DeMarco Murray, Julio Jones, A.J. Green, Marquise Lee, Jack Doyle, Steven Hushka, and the Vikings defense. So that lineup cashed for all kinds of reasons. Mostly Marquise Lee and Jack Doyle. When you hit on a Marquise Lee at $4,500 on FanDuel and you hit on a Jack Doyle at $4,700 on FanDuel, you're probably going to cash. But those were the two inexpensive players on FanDuel we identified as strong cash plays. And when we cash on DraftKings, it's because we don't pay for running backs. So on DraftKings, we thought Jaquiz Rogers and Duke Johnson were good enough running back plays to cash, which allowed us to afford Tom Brady. So Tom Brady, Jaquiz Rogers, Duke Johnson, Julio Jones, A.J. Green, Mike Evans, Jack Doyle, Marquise Lee, Ravens defense. T.Y. Hilton was also a great cash play, but based on his salary level, we just couldn't fit him in. With a player like T.Y. Hilton, you're not necessarily so concerned with the matchup, and specifically and specifically, not overly concerned about the fantasy points allowed. The reason T.Y. Hilton has been such a tremendous cash game play this year is because he's the only starter left in the entire passing game. This isn't hard to figure out. He's sharing a field with Chester Rogers and Jack Doyle, for Christ's sake. 
It's like T.Y. Hilton's visiting a speakeasy in 1922 whenever he goes out and runs a pattern. Oh, hey, Jack Doyle. Oh, hey, Chester Rogers. What is this? Who are these guys? Of course, T.Y. Hilton is going to absorb an inordinate target share with Dante Moncrief and Philip Dorsett out. Target share matters a lot when you're creating cash game lineups. When you have an opportunity to play T.Y. Hilton, you play T.Y. Hilton. Fantasy football is not hard. The quarterback also matters, and Andrew Luck is a good quarterback. You hear a lot of sports analysts questioning Andrew Luck's ability. Slow down. There are enough bad quarterbacks in the NFL in the form of Blake Bortles and Brock Osweiler to criticize without defaulting to some contrived hot take. Andrew Luck is good. T.Y. Hilton is good. Talent matters. Target share matters. You put those together, that's how you get an ideal cash game play in T.Y. Hilton. And some people didn't play T.Y. Hilton because he was facing the Tennessee Titans. The Tennessee Titans, through six weeks, were near the bottom of the league in fantasy points allowed to wide receivers. The Tennessee defense was not dispensing fantasy points to wide receivers this year. So stay away from T.Y. Hilton and cash, right? No! Because T.Y. Hilton exists in that nexus of talent and opportunity, unless he's facing an elite corner like A.J. Boy, like Xavier Rhodes, like Aqib Talib, like Darius Slay, then you have nothing to worry about. Tennessee doesn't have a cornerback in the top 20 of the playerprofiler.com cornerback coverage rating. So even though Tennessee allowed very few fantasy points to wide receivers, T.Y. Hilton remained an incredibly strong cash play last week. But because Julio Jones and A.J. Green and Mike Evans were also incredible plays, we couldn't fit him in the lineup. Just another week where paying up for wide receivers was the rational move, particularly on DraftKings.